This morning, just to lay out the land for you so you'll have an understanding, this morning we'll be wrapping up, if you would, or answering the question that I asked at the end of the class last week. And then, for the next several weeks, next week will be a time of prayer. We're hoping that those who love the Word will also love prayer. Kind of the two go together, you know. We walk on two legs as believers, the Word and prayer. So next week, the 8th, will be Sunday morning. At this time will be a time of prayer. Then after that, Evan will be sharing with us issues of Islam. And that's been announced. It will continue to be announced. And that will happen for several weeks. And at the end of that time, we'll conclude again with a Sunday morning of prayer. We always end the series, and before beginning another one, we have a prayer time. And then at that point, I'll come back and conclude this series with application. Because everything we've said concerning prophet, priest, and king, all of God's purpose in that must be transferred from just being an academic, theological kind of an understanding. I enjoy that. I understand that. I've never seen that before. I know how this works now. All of that must be translated into a living reality in the church. Because this is why God has saved us. He saved us not just to give us a lot of information, but he saved us to give a revelation about himself so that in the church by the Spirit, that revelation that he teaches us in his word will become a living dynamic manifestation and imaging of who he is. Because God has awesomely decided before eternity, it's always been in his heart, to manifest his glory through his people. And so if you're wondering, why am I saved? What is God's purpose? God's purpose is that we would be Genesis 126 people, a people who image him, a people in whose personal life, in whose corporate collective life, in the relationships that we share, in the way we um, communicate, in the way we think, in the way we uh, respond to the world, in all of this, in all of this, that he, the truth about who God is and how God is, the truth of his nature and of his character may be seen in a dazzling display of glory to all the creation. Amen? That's why we're here. That's our purpose. And everything we learn of the Word is used by the Holy Spirit to move us in a greater way to be living out that purpose as the Holy Spirit is conforming us to the image of God's Son. Father, thank you so much for your Word this morning. Father, pray that, oh, so inadequate, pray that your Holy Spirit, who is adequate, that he will communicate to us this morning this most glorious truth about who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're going to answer the question that I raised last week. And it should be an obvious question because when we look at ourselves, this should be a question. How can three distinct yet equal in every way, divine persons relate to one another 
in a fellowship through their roles in a way that they are absolutely in harmony and in unity all the time. How can that happen? How can two or more walk together, remember, and display unity and harmony? How can this God, who is fully God within himself but not by himself as the Father, this God who is fully God within himself but not by himself as the Son, this God who is fully God within himself but not by himself as the Spirit, this God who each person has a particular role, which we've been discussing for the last several weeks, how can this be? that three can come together and relate as one so that when you look at the diversity or the distinctiveness of each person's role and see the interrelationship of these roles and watch as each one pursues the purpose of the one being of God, and it all is singular in its ability and its result. How can that happen? That's what we want to talk about this morning. You know, if, we're, if we were to ask, let's say in Islam, in Muslim, let's talk about a Muslim, and, and I think this could be applied to any religion at all, to say, what is your God like? You know, what is Allah like? There are a lot of characteristics or attributes that are given or said about Allah or any God. Now, we may not agree with them, but the potential is there for that to be right. Remember Odin? Remember the Norse God? Zeus? Remember the Roman gods? Allah, the Islam God, whatever the God is we could give them a lot of attributes and within the context of that religious system they could be right. For instance, we could say that that God is merciful. Now we may not define mercy the same way but they may say this. They may say that God is good, that God is gracious, that God is holy, separate, different, distinct, that God is righteous, right in what he does. Who's challenging that God is faithful, he's powerful, he's sovereign. Those kinds of words could be applied. We believe and would be correct in saying they're being applied incorrectly, but the persons who worship in those religious systems would say, Allah is great, amen? Allah is all-powerful. Allah is sovereign. Allah is etc. or Zeus, or whoever the God is fine. But there's just one appellation that cannot be said of any other deity that makes sense. They can say it, but it doesn't make sense, and it cannot be true under any circumstance. And that is the, that is the statement that is said about God in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. What is it that is so distinct that makes the three, allows the three persons of God to function in roles of such unity 
that Deuteronomy 4, 6 is true. What? 6, 4 is true. What? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What is it? It is this, and you probably already know what I'm going to say because you've looked at your notes, hopefully. God is love. God is love. You see, in this statement, in God is love, and as a believer and as church people, we say this, God is love. God loves the love of God. And we say it not in a disparaging or a put-down way, but we don't say it. And we don't think about it or consider it. We don't ponder it as that which is imponderable, that which is so deeply, magnificently great about God that it is so far beyond our understanding. Because what we do as a people, we say, yes, God loves me. God loves you. God's love is great. And what we're doing is we're missing, if we're not careful, the incredibleness of what the love of God really is. Because when we read God is love, let's be truthful. Whom do we consider first in that statement? God loves me. Now, come on. When you read God is love, what strikes you first? Doesn't it mostly strike me first, strike us first at what God loves me? Isn't this right? When we say God loves you, okay, it's about us. Now, that is not incorrect for believers, but it misses the point. You see, it misses the depth of what God is communicating when the Holy Spirit gives to the Apostle John in 1 John 4, 8. God is love. It misses the point. You see, typically when we hear God is love, we think about his love for us. Don't we? Isn't that true? Am I wrong in that? I mean, I was like that for years and years. I thought about that. God loves me. He loves my wife. He loves you. That's the essence of the love of God. The love of God, the essence of it, is so spectacular that he loves me. And that is biblical. For God so loved you that he gave his only son. That's biblical. But it misses the essence, the depth. It misses the grandeur of the Great Canyon. It's like traveling past the Grand Canyon and just seeing a little glimpse of it. Oh, I saw the Grand Canyon. Well, you did, but you really did not. Isn't that right? You saw it, but you really didn't see it. So let's see what we have here. God is love. 1 John 4, 8. I want you to remember that verse. It is probably the most quintessentially significant verse about the person of God that we have. It distills all about God's personhood and character into three simple yet the most profound words that were ever spoken. God is love. 
because everything about the love of God and everything about our redemption and everything about the church and everything about the cross and everything about the incarnation, everything about everything is wrapped up and contained in that three-word statement, God is love. Because you see, in manifesting, I'm sorry, in saving the church, what is God manifesting is that I am within myself, among the three persons, I am love. God is love within himself. Each person loving the other. Each person communicating and relating to the other in a love that is absolutely pure and without any defect at all so that God can be said to be joy-filled in himself about himself, that God can be said to be at peace within himself about himself. And so what do we have in Galatians 5.22? For the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now there it is. The Holy Spirit in saving us brings us into an experience of this internal love that God has within himself among the three persons of the Trinity. When we are saved, the Holy Spirit, if you would, baptizes us, remember, into Christ, places us into the very community of God himself where we experience the love that God has within himself about himself. So what we are experiencing is not so much essentially God's love for me, although we are experiencing that. We are experiencing God's love for himself and within himself that he so lovingly desires to communicate and fill me with this love. Amen? This is what the love of God is all about. And this is what we are experiencing. And so when Galatians, Paul says in Galatians 5.22, for the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the statement. Well, let me give you a few adjectives to give you an understanding of what love means. So the experience of love is joy. So what does God experience within himself concerning love? There's a joy within God among the three persons of the Trinity. There is an eternal, absolute, pure, and holy, unending joy. This is why Jesus says, my joy I give to you. Not as the world gives. I give you my joy. What joy? The joy that I have in experiencing the love of the Father and the love of the Spirit, this communal joy within God among the three persons. So the experience is joy. What is the effect of the love of God? Peace. Remember? Love, joy, peace. Peace. Meaning that the three persons of God are absolutely and forever at rest, at peace, in harmony, in unity, with one another. There's no strife. There's no discord. There's only an absolute peaceable community that God forever experiences among the three persons. So Jesus says, 
I give you my peace. Peace be with you. What peace? The peace that the three persons of God are experiencing forever among themselves. Do we see this? You see, God is giving us not things, but he is giving us of himself, of the very substance of who he is in his personhood. That's what we are experiencing. Now, the other words, what is it? Love, joy, peace, what? Long-suffering, patience, kindness. The potential of all of this is in God. But you see, God is not experiencing forgiveness among himself, the three persons. God is not experiencing patience. God is not experiencing these other words because these words have to do with us. So it's all potential within God and isn't to be expressed or communicated or, if you would, experiencing God until sin comes into the picture through us. Then God is beginning to experience and give to us forbearance. Why? Because he's a loving God within himself. He begins to give us faithfulness. Why? Because, you see, God is in himself a being that does not have to exercise patience and long-suffering and forgiveness, etc., among the persons of God. So there is a potential there, and there are issues of love there that are not experienced, if you would, within the community of God, but are given to us as a result of the loving community within God. Now, God is love answers the three questions. I mean, the question, how can three equal divine beings communicate and live in such a fellowship. God is love is a statement that God is a plurality of persons who associate and relate in a fellowship of mutual loving relationships. So when we say or the Bible says God is love, it talks about not only the character of God, but the very being of God. Because in order to be love, the reason Allah cannot be God and cannot be a loving deity is that as a single person being, he does not have the ability to love because you must have an object. Love is only love when it is given to an object, received by the other, and reciprocally returned in loving back to the one who generates the love. Do you see that? And so what is the only primary and only real issue between Allah and Yahweh? What is it? Allah is a single person being, and Yahweh is a three person in the one being of God. You don't have to go down the street of the other, well, Allah does this, and Allah says that, and fooey with all that. That misses the point. The point is this. Only Yahweh of the Old Testament, of the New Testament, and the man Jesus Christ having come to demonstrate and reveal the blazing beauty of who the person of God is in the incarnation. Now we see he's a three-person being hinted at at the end and old and more brought to fruition and manifested uh, a reality in the new. That's all we have to know. There is a distinction. Our God is the only deity in all the world forever and ever who can be rightly, correctly, truthfully, accurately said of whom we can say God is love. If anybody says that about any other deity... 
put a nice smile on your face and ask a few questions about what that means. Well, what do you mean Allah is love? Well, before Allah created the heavens and the earth, was he love? Oh, yes. Well, whom was he loving? You see, there was not another person there. This is our God. This is the essence of who our God is. And this is what God is portraying in and through us, the church. This morning, I hope to unpack some of this awesome truth. I need to move along a little more quickly, don't I? So let's talk about this. Let's remember what we have already learned about the roles of the persons of the one being of God. Let's remember what we've already learned. The Father is the authoritative source within the Trinity. Remember, we learned that. He is the fountain, the source, the authority. He is the team leader, if you would. And the Son and the Spirit are in submission to the Father's will. And so everything that we see in the cosmos, everything that we see it, see or ever will see, all of it is because the Father has decreed it from eternity past. It's all the result of the Father's leading authoritative decree. And it is put into reality by the submission of the Son of God in conjunction with the submissive work of the Holy Spirit. And we discussed those three issues or those three persons' roles in the last few weeks. So I don't want to do that again this morning. But we saw that. So we see that there is within the personhood of God, there is the leader, the Father. And we talked about some scriptures that God would be, Father would be over all and in all and through all, remember, and above all. And at the end, Jesus hands over the kingdom back to the Father so that he would receive, remember, all the glory in this. It's a recognition of the Father's leadership. Now, you may say, well, how did this work out? But I don't know. All we know is that this God has always been this way. When did it happen? What, I don't know. It just didn't. It's always been this way. God has been static in his nature, in his character. He's static. I never changed. Malachi 3, 6, Hebrews 13. Remember, Jesus Christ, what? The same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't change. And so, the Father is the authoritative source, if you would, within the Trinity. And the Son and the Holy Spirit are submitted to his leadership. Now, however, now before I say this, or before you see it in your notes, think. Think. The divine father, the source, the leader, having all authority whatsoever in himself so that there is not anything that the son or the spirit do apart from the father's will or decree. Do we get that? Do we get that? This is how it is in the Trinity. Here you have the fatherhood of God within the Trinity. However, the Father, even as the supreme sovereign head within the Trinity, the Father does not exercise his authority to lord it over the Son or the Spirit, but lovingly leads and lovingly defers and lovingly ministers through the Son 
and the Spirit. This is godly leadership. This loving deference and this loving leadership and this loving co-together operation with the other two persons of the Godhead in order to fulfill the one will of the one being of God. The Father lovingly leads the Son and the Spirit to carry out His will and work through, how? Through their loving, respectful submission. The Father lovingly decrees, lovingly decides, if you would. I don't like the word decides because it looked like something had to happen at a particular time. But the, love, the Father's loving, uh, the Father's purpose eternally is then put into action at a particular time as the Son and the Holy Spirit lovingly receive the will, the decree, the command of God. And they lovingly and respectfully submit to that decree, that command of the Father to do His will. Listen to what Ephesians 1 through Four, uh, Ephesians 1, let me read some of these verses, 4 to 6. This, is the, this shows us the result of this loving leadership, this loving deference, the Father deferring and giving of his authority to others so that his authoritative will may be carried out through another, this deference to the Son and the Spirit, and the Son and the Spirit's loving reception and respectful submission to that will in carrying it out. And let's see what Ephesians 4 to 6 and then uh, 12 and then 13 and 14 say is a result of that. Listen to this. In love, the Father predestined us for adoption. How? Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of the Father's will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in his beloved Son. So the Father is glorified in administering his authoritative sovereign decree in a deferential or sharing way, in a loving way with his Son. What about the Son? Oh, I left that out. The Son is then to be praised in taking the Father's will and carrying it out all the way to the incarnation. And then the work of the Holy Spirit. He is there to minister to the Son and lead the Son during the incarnation. And then after the incarnation, as Jesus is exalted, now the Spirit is the Father and the Son's agent upon the earth, administering the will of the Father as appropriated and purchased, if you would, by the Son, and now appropriated by the Spirit as he births the church and matures us in Christ. In him, the Holy Spirit, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him and were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Spirit's work, who is the guarantee, the Arabon, is a 10%. He's the down payment, the 10%. Tithes are still important to God anyway. He's a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And when do we acquire full possession of our inheritance? When? When Jesus returns. You see, this means that the Father does not unilaterally. Do you know what the word unilateral means? I do it on my own. It's me. I'm in charge. I'm going to do it. I don't need anybody else. That's unilateral. Now get this, church. 
Because you see, what happens here and what the trouble for us is, this strikes death to our pride. This stings our flesh. So that I have to share the teaching of this class with others. Yes, that I as a leader have to depend upon your submission and cooperation to fulfill the will of God in his church. And that should not be an obnoxious thing. It should be a joyful thing. Why? Because it is the father's joy to share. It is the son's joy to participate as a partner in that sharing. And it is the joy of the Holy Spirit to minister that co-sharing of the father and the son. This means that the father does not unilaterally inflict his will upon the son or the spirit. As some say, God is a child abuser. He made his son come to the earth. But in joyful love, in joyful love, in the joy of having his son accomplish his purpose. Dads, can you imagine that if you have a purpose which is honorable and great and ask your son, sweetheart, would you accomplish this purpose for me? And your son says no. But as your son says what? Yes. And you begin to watch him put into reality the purpose that you have as a father. What joy it is for the father to see the son and what reciprocal joy it is for the son to do this for the loving father. And what a joy it is to the Holy Spirit to carry out this purchased purpose, this purchased purpose in the church. See, the joy of God, the love of God, the love that, the joy that, the peace that is within God among the three persons of the Trinity. And so the Father does not unilaterally inflict, but in joyful love, he leads by what? Lovingly sharing his work with the Son and with the Spirit who joyfully and respectfully obey His will. I continually say joyfully and lovingly and respectfully because all those words, joyful, loving, respect, are contained in the real meaning of the word obey. If any of those three words are left out in my word of obedience, then I am not obeying the way the Father wants me to obey for his joy. Amen? That's where obedience is glorious. That's where so many have missed the understanding when the Bible talks about obey this and don't do that. And so they see it as sets and rules and regulations as hogwash. It all has to do with the glorious love and joy of a Father who now defers and shares his own glorious work and his glorious person with us, the church. So our greatest desire, our greatest passion should be what is the will of God and how to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish this will of God. Why? For the pleasing of God. And you have that in Colossians 1, 9 and 10. 
This is our motivation, and this is our empowerment as a church. This is where grace thrives, and the fires of grace begin to burn in us and create in us a flaming zeal for thy house as Jesus had in John 2.17 when he cleansed the temple. Why a zeal? Because in doing so, he was fulfilling the joyful, loving, respectful, deference purpose of God in doing so. This mutual sharing through love reveals the product of divine humility. This is humility. This is what humility is. This sharing, this mutual love, respect, joy-filled, peaceable obedience among the three persons emanating from the source and the authority of the Father and being given to the Son and the Spirit who all together, all three, are involved in the activity of the leadership of the one. So when Jesus is upon the earth purchasing our salvation, the Spirit and the Father are involved in that. No one does anything unilaterally. They all do it collectively, although one is given leadership in a particular aspect of our salvation to carry out the will of God. And all three are always involved in any one work. And so you see the product of divine humility. Divine humility working through divine love. One without the other denies both. If you are trying to figure out and understand what humility is, where do you look? You look at the persons of God and you begin with the Father. The Father's humility in surrendering or sharing, if you would, his sovereign prerogatives with the Son and with the Spirit. That is the essence of what humility is. This reciprocity of giving and receiving and responding and giving back, this love, this joy-filled, peaceable community relating to one another in such an atmosphere that it is a, a community of absolute harmony and unity. This is the humility of God. You see, this intertwining of loving humility is the very basis for and the product of the way the persons of God have always related as a community. And you know, rather than humility deprecating or diminishing the Father, Humility is accentuating the Father's greatness. Humility always accentuates and trumpets the truth about God. Pride always denies that trumpeting and accentuation of God. Amen? That's the product, that's the purpose of, that, that is the result of humility always trumpeting and accentuating the person of the roles of the persons of God, the person of the one being of God. It's about God. Let's talk about the incarnational love of God. I have to move along. This eternal intertwining, you see what I'm saying? The intertwining, the intertwining into a tapestry so that all these threads are so bound together that they can be said to be one cloth, one cloth. 
this intertwining of communal loving humility is a reason for the incarnation. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came, to declare the Father. I have come that you may know the Father. And why does the Father send the Son to the cross? Why does the Father send the Son to the cross? Because he loves the Son. See, this is what's so misunderstood. The Father loves the Son. The Father knows that the only way that he can have a people of his love and in his love and through his love and abounding in his love, the only way that God can exercise his self-givingness is to have a people. And so he says, if you would, to the son, son, the only way this can be accomplished is that you become incarnate in the man or the human man of Jesus and go to the cross. And the son does that. Why? Because he loves the father. So listen to the father's love for the son in John 5, 20. Jesus said, the father loves the son and shows him all that he does. And when Jesus says he shows him all that he does, he's showing them the cross. And showing Jesus the cross, Jesus says, the father loves me, that he would give to me the greatest responsibility and the greatest joy that any man could ever have by letting me and sending me to the cross to purchase a people for his own love, that he may be glorified forever. The love of God. This is the love of God. It's incredible what the love of God is. Let's make sure we don't diminish it to be about issues of here and there. It's about the glory of this great God of ours. This is why every other God is not a God. How is this love? The Father's will is poured out. The, the marvelous grace of Father's will is poured out because he loves his people. And what does his love for his people mean? He shares the love that he has within himself among these three persons with his people. We are sharers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1 says. Amen? We are now communally sharing in that reciprocity of giving and receiving and returning love, respect, joy, peace, obedience. In Matthew 17, 5, what is the Father's... Uh, what is the father's uh, 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 result? Oh, his, uh, I can't find my word. We see the father's loving response. There it is right in front of me. What is the father's response to the son's, the son's obedience? What does he say in Matthew 17 upon the Mount of Transfiguration? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my man upon the earth. This is my man. This is the only man who has ever walked in flesh who accurately, consistently, compellingly displays my love. I love this man. Why? Because he fulfills my purpose of sharing my love with my people. Father loves the son. What was the son's motive for submitting to the father's will? Anybody ever read Hebrews 12 too? Oh, for the what? Joy. That was set before him. What joy? The joy is saving us? Secondarily. Secondarily. Don't make us the issue. God is the issue. Secondarily. Secondarily. Thank God it's not us. Oh, for the joy that was set before him. Whose joy? The joy of the father for having his son 
take the wrath against sin to the cross. The joy of fulfilling the Father's purpose. For the joy that was set before him, what? What did he do? He endured the cross and is now set down where? At the right hand of the Father's authority. You see, in John 14, 31, Jesus tells us why. He humbled himself. Remember? He humbled himself. Remember in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. Why did Jesus humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why? Listen to what he says in John 14, 31. I love the Father, and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. He, Jesus, is operating. The incarnate Son is upon the earth, giving us the living reality, the living, functioning demonstration in a man of who God is, of the three, how the three persons of God interrelate in a community of loving roles in their fellowship. He is showing us this in this man, Jesus. And the man, Jesus, is responding and being obedient to this, even to the point of death, so that the Father's love may be fully manifested upon the earth and given to his people and displayed for all eternity, especially in the new heavens and the new earth. So what is going on in this mutual exchange of love? The glory of the Father's love for the Son is being manifested through the glory of the Son's love for the, for the Father. The glory of the love, when we look at what the love of God is all about, if you want to know what the glory of God is all about, you remember the Lord told Moses, I'm going to make my glory pass before you, but I'm only going to show you a little bit of myself. I'm going to hide you in the split rock, right? The cleft rock. Jesus was cleft for us. And I'm going to make my glory pass before you. And how? What does he say? All of my said, my what? Loving kindness. You see, this love that is within God among the three persons of the God is so opposite of what the world calls love. It is absolutely the distinction between blazing light and utter darkness. This is a manifestation of the glory of God, that he is a triune being, each person relating to the other through distinct roles in an atmosphere of love that produces joy and peace within God. So that God is said in his three persons to be one. This is the glory of God. And that glory is now set where upon the earth? Right here in this room. Right here in this room. You see, at the beginning of the lesson, I asked, how can... Three equal persons, co-eternal, sharing the very same nature, attributes, power, etc. How can they function in such a way as God is in unity, harmony, joy, peace? See, the answer to this was where? What verse did I give you? First John 4, 8. First John 4, 8. First John 4, 8. First John 4, 8. 
God is love. I'm hoping this morning that this little bit of presentation has helped to expand this for us. The answer is God is love. The three persons of the one being of God fellowship and work in an atmosphere of mutual love and respect. See, this is the love. This is the love that God has so passionately displayed through our salvation and has given to us to share. For God so loved the world. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And I show you in 1 Corinthians a more excellent way. What? Love. See what love the Father has bestowed upon us. Remember 1 John 3. God is love in 1 John 4, 8. And finally, God's love for Jesus may be in us was Jesus' prayer. See, this is why John writes to the church in 1 John 4, 7 to 12. And I want you not to read it today, but I want you to go home and read 1 John 4, 7 to 12. Is that, do I have the verses right? I want you to read those verses this time for the first time within the context of the divine community of love. Amen? Now, in several weeks, we'll come back and apply all this to the church and to men and women in marriages. Thank you.